No one knows when it first appeared, but the practice became popular in the late 1800s. American bars, in an effort to entice customers to come in, would offer free food. The sign read like this, buy one drink, get a free lunch. Patrons who came into those establishments were determined, many of them, to buy only one drink, get the free food, and then make out like a bandit. But that rarely ever happened for two reasons. Number one, because of the fact that many people have a weakness for alcohol. And just a drink leads to what they can't stop at one. And of course, the proprietors knew that. But here's the big reason. The second reason is this. The food that they offered was highly salty. Ham and cheese and salted crackers and peanuts. Have as much as you want, they would say. And those who came in to drink kept drinking. And the house won. And thus the adage came popular as a grave warning. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, we, we hear that, that we hear things like this. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. Probably is. You and I are skittish of the hawker who tells us we can have something for nothing. We say there's got to be a trap to it. And perhaps that's why Americans have such a hard time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's free. Let me encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, that portion of Scripture that was read beautifully for us by Pat earlier. Isaiah chapter 53. We've been doing our Christmas series in the book of Isaiah. We looked at chapter 7 and chapter 9. And now for a bit of surprise, we come to Isaiah 55. We have to remember that Isaiah, the prophet, is writing to his own people, the southern kingdom of Judah. They are a broken nation in bondage. They're, they're longing to go back to their homeland. They're crying out for deliverance. They're thirsty for meaning in life. They're hungry for something that would be significant and satisfying. They're longing for what all people long for, a life that means something. And to these people, Isaiah gives the word of God. And it starts out first focused on this thing called mercy. God's mercy is offered. I love the fact that uh, John Stott and others have said Christianity is basically a religion of revelation. Essentially a revealed religion. That is, we can know nothing of God unless God makes himself known to us. And so here we have the word of God through the prophet of God making known the character of God, which is the mercy of God. One of the hardest things for people to grasp is this fact of God's mercy. Mercy means God not giving us what we truly deserve. So look at how this chapter starts out. Chapter 55, verse 1. Come. All you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Buy wine, milk, your choice. Buy it without money and without cost. For why should you spend your money 
on that which is not bread? And why your energy and labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me. Eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. First of all, there is this offer of free uh, provisions, free food. And the whole idea is that this food is not the literal food, but it is a spiritual food that gives life, verse 3, that delights your soul, verse 2. And you get this drink, and you get this food, which is the richest affair, without money, without purchasing it, offered by grace. Then the prophet says, verse, middle of verse 3, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, the Lord speaking to his people Israel. I will give to you the unfailing love, the sure mercies promised to David. David was a witness to the people, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Israel, surely you will summon the nation someday, nations that you don't know and nations that don't know you. One day will come to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, will make you glorious. He has endowed you with splendor. And so there is a prophecy about a future glory that is going to come to Israel, but it's based on God's free offer of mercy. They were a broken people, a sinful people, and they needed to be forgiven. That's why the book of Isaiah starts out, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red and dark like crimson, they shall become like wool. So God's gracious invitation is come. Verse 2, listen. And verse 6, seek. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Is not in there in the air around that verse this sense that he may not be here long? That the opportunity may not be here long? That you better grab this chance while you can? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him. While he's near. Well, there's a sense in which each one of us is reminded of our own mortality every time we go to a funeral. We grieve for the family that has lost a loved one. We think of that, about that person that is gone. But do you grieve for yourself? And do you say to yourself, I don't have much time left either. Because whatever you have, it's short. Take the opportunity while you have the opportunity to seek him, to find him, because he's close to each one of us. That's a great message of Christmas, isn't it? God is close. He's come to us. Well, how do I do that? Verse 7, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous person their thoughts. We can't go through a list of all that the unrighteous will think and the unrighteous thoughts in our own soul, but they're often thoughts of lust and power centered on self and greed. And oh yes, here's one of our thoughts. There's no such thing 
is a free lunch. Lord, you want to save me? I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I'm used to pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. I'll say the prayers. I'll, I'll do the penance. I'll give the alms. I'll do whatever it takes to earn my way into heaven. And God says, no, you can't. But it's the American way. It's not God's way. God's way is a way of grace. And when you turn from your wicked ways and turn to the Holy Lord, get this, He will have mercy on you. And to our God, last part of verse 7, for He will freely pardon. This great chapter is about the free grace of God. Free to you and me costs Jesus' life. That's why He died on the cross. And so we are to consume the Lord Jesus, receive Him, turn to Him as one would consume a meal. Go back to the first few verses. If you're hungry, eat something. If you're thirsty, drink something. And this will give you satisfaction in life. Jesus, by the way, is the living water, and Jesus is the bread of life. Trust Him as your Lord and Savior. Turn to Him, and He will have mercy on you. You say, no, I don't do charity. If I'm going to become a Christian, I'm going to earn it. My friend, you don't want justice. You want mercy. I love the story of the person who was having his picture taken professionally by a photographer. And after the setting was done, which was tedious, all the proofs were put out there. And the wife was looking at the portraits of her husband. And she said, none of, you, none of these pictures do you justice. He said, I don't want justice. I want mercy. And when you stand before God, that's exactly what you'll say. I don't want justice. I need mercy. And that's what God offers, freely offers, in the gospel of His Son. Now here's where we sometimes go astray. We quote the next two verses out of context, and that's probably okay because they're always true, but they're especially true when talking about the mercy of God. That is that God's mercy is inconceivable to us. What do you mean, verse 8? God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We cannot understand God's grace because it's godly. Think about it. His ways and thoughts are radically different from us. And they're greatly elevated above us. They're inaccessible to us, incomprehensible to us. Our little minds cannot climb the Himalayan heights of infinity. Some of you say, I can't understand God. Well, good, because He's infinite, and you and I are finite, and we can't contain all the information. Just the other week, I received on my phone a message. You have no more room to take pictures. You can't take any more pictures. No more room. Give us some money. We'll send your pictures to the cloud. You can take more pictures. 
I said, I don't want to do that. So I took my phone and downloaded it to my computer. And my computer said, your hard drive has, doesn't have any more room to take these pictures. When you try to understand God, remember this. You can't. What he's revealed to us is revealed to us. The secret things belong to him. And even in what is revealed, it's hard for us to grasp, like mercy. Because the way I dole out mercy is not the way God gives it. I'm pretty stingy. God is loving and gracious, free with his mercy. We need to understand that there is this huge gap between the human and the divine. And I'm so glad for that. So if we can't climb up to God, God comes down to us. And this is the rest of the chapter. The mercy of God coming down to us. It starts out by an illustration in verse 10. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Now, I know there's only a comma there, but let's stop there for a moment. The imagery here is of Canaan receiving what it so desperately needs. It rarely rains in Israel. And when it does, they catch every drop of rain. Everywhere you go, there's a cistern. Underneath the city of Jerusalem, filled with cisterns, catching every drop of water. When it snows, it comes down on Mount Hermon. And then when it melts, it comes down, sometimes like a flood. Many flash floods when it rains or the snow melts. The snow comes down from Mount Hermon to the little city of Dan, the Old Testament city of Dan. And there it forms a river. It is the river of the city of Dan, or simply called the Jordan, and it comes down into the Sea of Galilee, and then from there all the way to the Dead Sea, and from there it doesn't go anywhere except up. The evaporation cycle, and then it starts all over again. Here's the illustration. They know it well. They can't control this rain. They can only receive it. It gives life to everyone on the earth, the plants, the animals, the human beings. It satiates our bodies. It accomplishes its purpose, and then it goes back to heaven, right? That's the illustration. Here's the application. Verse 11, so is my word that goes from my mouth. So the mercy of God is seen in a general way in the rain that falls upon us. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. But get this. It is the Word of God that brings the mercy to us. It is the Word of God that reveals the character of God to us. It is the Word that goes forth from His mouth. Like the rain, it will not return empty. And it will accomplish the purpose that God has designed for it. It's always successful. But something hit me the other week when I was reading this that I don't think I've seen before. And that the word of God sent to us is not just the book or the message of the prophets. The word of God sent to us is Jesus himself. He's the living word. This is an Advent passage. So is my living word that comes out of my mouth. Think about it. Jesus is God's word. He comes down from heaven, sent by the Father as a gift, 
You can't control that. You can only receive him in his great mercy. He waters the earth and accomplishes his purpose. He always succeeds. And then he returns to heaven. Accomplishing the atonement for our sins. The paying the penalty for our sins. It's very interesting that verse 10 and 11 in the Hebrew form one continuing sentence that is very unusual for the Hebrew, for the, for the language of the Hebrews. The prophecy was not fulfilled in Isaiah's day, but was yet to come. They had the word of the prophets, but something was still coming. When the readers of John's prologue in his gospel, that is chapter 1, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The Word was with God. The Word was God. When they read that prologue in John's gospel, perhaps they recognized the personification of the Word as portrayed way back in Isaiah 55 and verse 11. I went to the commentators to see if there was anyone who saw the same thing. And G. Campbell Morgan said this, the Word of God in verse 11, by that phrase, it means everything that the Word of God means. It is both a written word in symbol and story, in prophecy and promise, and it is the living Word of God, the person of Jesus Christ himself. The venerable John Gill, an old English pastor from London in the 1800s said this. This verse, verse 11, may be understood of Jesus, the eternal word who's called the living word of God. He may be said to go forth out of the Father's mouth, sent from the Father as a free gift, whose coming is like the rain and the snow, suddenly, gratefully, and with great efficacy, watering his people with grace. I love that phrase. That's tweetable. Watering his people with grace. What did Jesus come to do? He came to water the world with grace. Law came by Moses. Grace and truth by Jesus. So like the rain coming down, so did Christ, watering the earth, making his people fruitful, and though Jesus returned to heaven again, yet not empty, he produced a large harvest of souls. We read in the book of Hosea, chapter 6, let us acknowledge the Lord, let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And so while verse 11 certainly does include the written word and the prophetic word proclaimed, what about the living word who comes down like rain to water the earth? And by the way, what Jesus does, he always accomplishes what he attempts to do. He does what the Father sent him to do. He achieves the purpose for which I sent him. Matthew Henry put it this way, that Christ coming into the world is like dew from heaven, and it will not be in vain. The Word of God will not be wasted. By the way, that's why I love to preach this book. 
My opinions mean nothing. This book is everything. It's the living word, and it will never return void. And Jesus accomplished his purpose. Isaiah 53, when he saw all that was accomplished by the travail of his soul, he was satisfied. It is finished. And he returned to heaven. There's a wonderful verse given to Mary. This is Luke chapter 1. When Mary was told by God, here's my plan, here's my thoughts, here's my ways, you're going to be pregnant with the Messiah, what did she say? I don't get it. Inconceivable. I can't, how can this be? She wasn't uh, denying that it would happen. She just couldn't get her arms around it. And this is what the angel Gabriel said to her. This is Luke 1, verse 37. For all things are possible with God. Or sometimes it's translated, nothing is impossible with God. The New Living Translation puts it like this. For the word of God will never fail. That's exactly what is being said. Mary, my promise, my word will not return void. The promise from the angel and the word living in your womb will never fail. And God is going to accomplish his purpose. That's why we can say, as the angel said to the shepherds, don't be afraid. Listen up. Behold. I give you good news that will cause great joy to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, what's the rest of it? A Savior, who is the King, Messiah, Christ the Lord. Christmas is only for the broken. You don't need a Savior, you don't need Christmas. He came to save. He came because we needed forgiveness. He came because we couldn't do it ourselves and nor could we understand how it could be done. He came to show us the mercy of God. And Jesus is the mercy of God personified. So how do we respond to all of this? Well, verse 7 says, turn from your wicked ways. And it also says, turn or trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Turn to the Lord. Seek Him while He may be found. How do I do that? Go back and read the first few verses. Receive Jesus as you would a meal. Taking it into your soul to nourish you. Commit your soul to Him. And then the experience, the result will be peace. That's what verse 12 says. Now, I know this is talking about second advent, but it also includes the first advent. You will go in and out and be led forth in peace. Go in and out in joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of thorn, the thorn bush will grow the pine tree or the juniper. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's glory, the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever and ever. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the whole world changes. 
remember that song, Heaven Above is Softer Blue, Earth Around is Sweeter Green. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with deeper beauties shine. Since I know is now I'm known, I am His, and He is mine. That's because of His infinite mercy and grace. And joy becomes the standard of the Christian that has Jesus in his heart. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And everything around you is totally different. John Stott put it this way. He said, here is described in vivid Hebrew poetic imagery the immense blessings enjoyed by those who receive Jesus. There's a new exodus in verse 12. You will go out and find joy. And they inherit a new promised land, verse 13, where everything is growing and the curse is gone. It's not that you're not going to have problems anymore, but with Jesus in your heart, there's a joy and a peace that passes all understanding and you are satisfied with Him. Christmas is for the broken. And Jesus is God's mercy come down to the broken. And when you acknowledge that you're broken, then you're a candidate for forgiveness. You've heard the name Josh McDowell, famous speaker and author. He's a great man of God. He said, my father's life was transformed in an instant when he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He said it was like someone switched, turned a light switch on in my dad's soul and everything was different. After he received Christ, he only took one drink and that was all. After drinking for 40 years steadily. Josh said that his dad died 14 months after he received Christ because of complications due to alcohol. But in those 14 months, he won under over 100 people to Christ <laughs> because they saw the transformation in the town drunk, Josh said, that was my dad. You see, when Jesus comes and forgives, he satisfies the soul with something better. It's a drink, and it's a food, and it's forgiveness. And so Christmas is all about Jesus bringing God's mercy to the broken. Oh, the hard-hearted King Herod will miss it, and the self-religionists, the Pharisees would miss it, the self-righteous. But those who know they're broken and need a Savior, this is good news. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that sometimes our Christmas celebrations take us off center and we forget that this is about you. This is about sending your son who came in humility but lived a perfect life. Died on the cross to satisfy your justice. The judgment aimed at our sin. And now it can all be forgiven. It can all be washed away by the blood of the cross. 
And we can find life that truly satisfies and fulfills when we embrace Jesus, who is the Word of God, come down to us to save. Make this the greatest Christmas ever, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.